Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with LM Archer on Zoom today. It's February 5th, 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today, LM. We really appreciate this. Thank you. And also joining us today is uh, Tia Elder. She's listening in on this interview as well. Um, so let's go ahead and start, LM, with the most important question of all, which is why wine? Oh, why do I write about wine? Well, uh, for me, wine is the intersection of the sacred and the profane. I mean, it's the underpinning of just about every sacred ritual and profane celebration since the time of man. And it's the red thread that binds civilization. And then as a writer, it's just an endlessly fascinating subject. I mean, there's so many components to it, history, uh, culture, commerce, geology, geography, chemistry, meteorology. The, it's, the topics are endless. Absolutely. So I know you've been writing for much of your life. Let's talk about kind of how you got into writing and, and sort of your career path uh, education uh, as you got started in your career. Okay. Yeah, well, it's pretty unconventional. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was eight. Uh, I grew up in a pretty unconventional uh, home. My, we lived for the first five years of my life in an artist community on the beach and one of our neighbors was Frank Herbert who wrote The Dune. And so I distinctly remember the adults sitting around a bonfire at night, passing around a jug of hearty Gallo Burgundy. <laughs> and um, so uh, from my father who was an aspiring writer turned PR man and later politician, uh, he really gave me a love of uh, not just writing, but art and music um, culture. He loved to cook. So I learned other cultures through cuisine. And, and for him, life was just one big movable feast. And so he taught me how to, you know, I like to say he gave me my eyes to see and my ears to hear, my heart to feel. And I bring that with me every time I write. And uh, so the, the desire to write was there from a very early age. Um, but I was a pragmatist and after graduating from college, um, I had student loans to pay. So I took a job in a Fortune 500 company and convinced them to let me write the intra-departmental newsletter. And that pretty much defined my writing for several years. I was just, it was just the sidebar to a very dull corporate life. And I just did a lot of corporate and trade publication writing. And, until I took a, um, a workshop in 2007, just because I was feeling like I needed something more challenging. I needed to get out of the corporate rut, but I didn't know how. And so I took a workshop and at the end of the workshop, the, um, the instructor told us that 
we could write about anything we wanted to write about, any subject. And so I wrote about wine. And honestly, I can't remember exactly what the storyline was, but I remember later thinking, why did I choose wine? And it, I realized that um, while I was in the corporate world, um, I had helped facilitate a uh, wine tasting for a professional organization I belonged to. And I just remember so vividly that um, doing the wine tasting, it was, I felt so warm and it felt so welcoming. And I know now that the corporate world was so gray and black and white and stepping into that wine tasting and then later writing about wine, it was like someone had turned on the Technicolor and, and life suddenly became color instead of black and white. And um, so I knew after I, I finished the course, I came home and I told my husband, you know, I really wanna write about wine. And he's like, okay, do it. But it took me four years um, to get up the gumption to, you know, let go of my benefits, my 401k, and <laughs> take that leap of faith. And so I started writing about wine in 2012. That's, that's incredible. I, I'm curious, you mentioned wine being kind of, you, you weren't really sure why you chose to write about wine in the moment and kind of reflecting on it. I'm curious at that point in your life, what was your knowledge of wine? What was your interest level in wine? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I didn't really drink alcohol <laughs> until after college. And I was a teetotaler. And when I started, and, and my introduction to uh, wine was uh, socially at events that I would go to, and it was always bubbles. And so that was my first introduction. And then I fell in with a group of people who um, I would say were recreational drinkers, and they enjoyed drinking the high end of the wine list. And that's when I learned about wine as a status symbol, because uh, the only thing I learned from them, I didn't learn anything about taste profiles or oaking protocols or anything like that. I just learned what, what labels were good or bad in their estimation. And so I think if you, that, that for me grew old. Um, and after a while I fell out with them and that whole lifestyle. And it wasn't until I met my husband, uh, my now husband, uh, he took me on a date and this was 2004. And, um, he ordered a bottle of Willa Kenzie Pinot Noir. And I distinctly remember that, that, that moment and that wine because it was the first time in my life where I realized that wine was an art. It wasn't just a beverage. I remember looking at it before I even drank it and I just held it up in the light and the color was so beautiful. It was this beautiful ruby. And I just, I looked at him, I said, this looks like a stained glass window. It reminded me of the stained glass windows in Saint-Chapelle in Paris. And so then I tasted it and it was so light. And, and I remember it kind of felt electric in my veins. It was just, it was a very vivid experience. And after that, I started uh, teaching myself about wine and, um, 
I really, and so I owe my, my education to, uh, to my introduction through uh, Oregon Pinot Noir. And, uh, and then after I started writing about wine, um, then I got my designations, so. That's a truly incredible wine origin story. I love that. And I love that it's Willa Kinsey, one of our very favorites, of course. Yeah, and it and you know, back just to, that was when Laurent Molyu was the winemaker. And uh it was just amazing. Yeah. So I owe everything to Oregon wine. <laughs> I love that. So you you talk about, you know, you have this idea, you have this brainstorm, you want to write about Oregon wine, or you want to excuse me, you want to write about wine and you and you and you start to learn about it and you start to educate yourself about it, but it takes a while to take that leap. So tell me about taking the leap and, and what finally prompted you to do it and, and kind of describe the, the emotions of the time and, and the actions of the time for me. Of, of taking that leap? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, I just remember, I guess, once you see life in Technicolor, <laughs> it's a little hard to live in black and white and gray. And, um, I'd started taking a toll on my health. And I remember driving home one night after work and I remember almost hearing, I just, I, I had a feeling in my gut and it just said, you're gonna be dead of stomach cancer in three years if you don't do something. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so I went home and I said, honey, I think I'm ready to take that leap. And so um, gave my notice. I'll never forget that day because my knees were up to my chin. I, they were knocking so badly. Um, and then I came home and it was like, okay, now what do I do? And um, I did, I made a few mistakes at the very beginning. And uh, one of the mistakes was I started a blog and I'm not a blogger. Blogging is about yourself and you have to be, you know, you have to be, you have to want to be the center of attention if you're a blogger. And I don't, I, I just want to tell stories. <laughs> and so I should have done what I, you know, what I should have done is what I have now, which is I should have just put up a site for my, my writing. And uh, so, but right away I started pitching and I did get some jobs and that gave me confidence to keep going. So um, I did that and started taking, uh, I started learning, uh, I actually started, um, through the International Guild of Sommeliers and uh, took the introductory courses there and quickly realized that that wasn't gonna be for me. I didn't wanna go into service. Um, one of the other things that I should mention is that uh, until 2015, I suffered from severe um, shyness. And that's why the corporate world was so perfect for me because you can hide in plain sight in the corporate world. <laughs> you know, nobody, you know, it's it's easy to do. But in the wine world, that's not the case because it's a world filled with people who are by nature gregarious and have high, high emotional intelligence and high social skills. And so I liken um, being shy to kind of like being Helen Keller, except you can see and you can hear, but you just don't know sign language. <laughs> and so uh, when I got into the wine world, um, I was getting these designate, you know, I, I learned that I, I wasn't gonna go that route of uh, Guild of Sommeliers because there was no way I could do service. 
Um, and at the same time that I was doing this um, writing uh, and um, pitching, I was also writing on the side uh, a historical novel set in uh, occupied France, uh, Burgundy actually, in World War II. And so I thought, well, I should probably learn about the wines of France and I should probably learn about the wines of Burgundy. And so that's when I started getting my designations in those and I got those through the Wine Scholar Guild. And then, um, <laughs> then I took a, then I attended a wine tasting um, of champagne and in tasting the wines, I realized that they're the flip side of Burgundy because it's uh, two of the same grapes, uh, Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay, and just a totally different expressions, architectural as opposed to um, linear. And so then I realized I really wanted to learn about champagne as well. So I studied that as well. Those are my designations. Um, and then the other mistake that I made um, for me, which, you know, you, you can say mistakes are good or bad, but at the end of the day, did, they, did you learn something from them? I did. But what I did was I forced myself to work in tasting rooms because as somebody who came from, came from the corporate world, I thought it was important to understand the business of wine because it is an art, but it is also a business. It's a very tough business. And so I needed, I wanted to understand that side. And so I made myself work in some tasting rooms. Some of the experiences were really good, but two of them in particular, the corporate and the boutique, they were horrible. And I did not belong there. And uh, at, finally in 2015, I just realized, what are you doing to yourself? This, this is just cruel. It's cruel. The people that I worked with were being cruel to me. I was being cruel to myself. So I just said, just concentrate on writing. And so that's what I did. And as soon as I started concentrating on writing, you know, things just took off and it just got easier and easier. And my writing just mushroomed and blossomed. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Absolutely, it does. And I'm going to have a couple of follow up questions from that. The, the first one is, you mentioned, you know, a mistake is a mistake is something you can learn from, and in this case, you did. I'm I'm curious while you were working on that side of things, what did you learn about the business side of wine, and how has it helped you in as you've written from beyond that? Oh well, you get to see behind the back door. It's like being in the Wizard of Oz and seeing the cart the curtain pull back. I mean, you understand. You know, people have this glamorous idea of wineries and wine, you know, the, the glamorous lifestyle of a winemaker. And the reality is there's a lot of cleaning, there's a lot of heavy lifting, and there's a lot of dirt under your fingernails. And uh, people just don't understand that. It is a hard business. And then you've got in, you know, you've got inventory that is sitting there that's causing, you know, costing money until you sell it. The cost to make it is, I don't think people understand just how expensive it is to make wine. And uh, so I learned all of that. And I learned about marketing and I learned about uh, packaging and I learned about SKUs and I mean, all the unglamorous things. All the unglamorous things, indeed, I like that. 
Uh, you talked about uh, when you did start pitching, uh, you, you started pitching right away and you, and you had some early bites. I'm curious uh, who or, or were there some early articles or some early publications that kind of felt kind of helped you gain confidence like I can yeah. do this. Tell me about some of the early kind of early confidence builder. Oh, definitely. Um, I pitched I, I got two stories published in Palette Press, one on Salud and one on Willamette Valley at uh, place with soul. So those two early, those were, you know, two of my first paid publications. Money wasn't great, but I was paid. And it was about the Willamette Valley, which to me, again, I think there's a cornerstone here. You know, the Burgundy and Willamette Valley, they're the cornerstone to my career as a wine writer. And uh, so. Absolutely. So uh, with the with those early publications and, and you're and you're getting into an industry now of people like you said that are gregarious that are confident that are verbose. Uh, tell me about getting a, kind of breaking through the shyness and, and talking to people in that industry and kind of fitting in with with an industry that's totally different than what you were used to. Um, well, I don't know that I'll ever fit in. I'm an outlier. I, that's just who I am. I, I'm always going to be the ones up on the hill um, seeing the patterns and the other things that people inside the pack are not going to notice. Uh, and I know that about myself. Um, I'm not trying to be, I can't be something I'm not. And again, that was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. <laughs> but um, that said, once you gain uh, comfort in your skin, then talking to people is easy because you have nothing to lose. Um, I am who I am. I can find, you know, I am a writer. That's who I am. And that, that it's so it's easy to talk to people now because as a writer, you're innately curious. And uh, as a storyteller, I'm innately um, want to know about the person I'm talking to I love to ask questions. I, 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 and so um, that it just, I don't know. Once I started being who I was and stopped trying to be something I wasn't, it just became very easy. <laughs> I don't know. So I, I had a similar experience, and I'm curious. I want to ask your opinion about this. I, it took me a while. I, I came into the job with very little background in, in wine or, or regions or, or terroir or anything. And, and it, the first couple of years were, were pretty terrifying to talk to people because the, the knowledge gap and the level, uh, at some point, they're going to talk about something that you don't know about and you're going to have to fake it. So I'm, I'm curious for you coming in, did you feel comfortable conversing about wine, conversing about uh, regions, conversing about styles? Uh, or, or how long did that confidence take? Oh, yeah, no, it, uh, right away, because I'm a geek. And so <laughs> I am a complete geek. And so I was, oh, man, I drilled down. I was, I had no, no, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome. No, I felt completely confident and comfortable talking about topics and things like that. Um, and again, the only time I felt like I was an imposter when I was, was when I was trying to be something I wasn't, which is when I wasn't writing or being a writer. Yeah. So. so take me through the process of writing for you. Uh, what, how does the process work? What does the day look like for you? What does a week look like for you? How, how does the writing process fit into, how do you make it fit into your schedule? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, 
uh, I write best early in the morning. So I'm an early riser. I'm usually up between 5.15 and 5.45 and in my office between 6.15 and 6.45. And uh, I use a time tracking system and I also kind of do an augmented Pomodoro method. Um, I have a timer that I set for 30 minutes. And so I have a, just a, a list of things that I go through every morning. Um, I time myself, get them done before I get onto the writing, answer emails. Um, and uh, get my morning brief from the news. <laughs> uh, it's on to writing and um, the days that I'm not writing, I'm pitching. So, uh, and then um, I do do interviews if and when I have to do them, I do them between 11 and one. Uh, and then in the afternoon, um, that's usually when I do that. If I'm not doing interviews, then I'm doing virtual tastings. And so then it's virtual tastings and webinars and in the afternoon, um, when I'm not doing virtual tastings and seminars, uh, I'm doing research. I'm logging uh, wine. I'm doing wine intake for my samples. I'm doing tasting notes. Um, and I'm also doing continuing education because I also do content and um, B2B. And so I'm constantly having to keep up on SEO and things like that. So. Continuing education is huge. You gotta make the time for that. And I'm generally um, done for the day by four. That is a lot. I refuse <laughs> to answer emails after five. And I, um, I don't do social media on the weekends because I don't think it's productive. I think uh, I need to have a life. <clears throat> I like that. You've obviously given it a lot of thought and, and kind of put, put a lot of energy into making it the most efficient and effective for you. Where, where do your story ideas come from mostly? Are they mostly things that, that come to you or are they mostly things that are, are that people tell you about, stories you overhear or things you're interested in or, or where do the stories come from for you? Uh, well, I think um, being naturally inquisitive and um, an observer, um, I I'm always thinking about stories. Um, a lot of stories come from just reading the news feeds, from doing research for stories that I'm writing, um, from my, um, while I'm doing the elliptical, <laughs> while I'm taking a walk, uh, it's just whatever cap captures my fancy, you know, having conversations. I belong to other um, professional writers organizations um, who write about other topics other than wine and so, um, for example, uh, one of the groups I, I we meet on a regular basis on Zoom, and um, just in talking to my colleagues about their topics, I get ideas for me. So, so you've you've written for a number of different publications now, a number of different kinds of styles and audiences. I'm I'm curious about making how you kind of make that work for yourself, writing for the Oregon Wine Press versus writing for the Wine Enthusiast or something. You know, writing for all these different kind of publications. How do you do you do you have to manipulate your style? Do you have to, how do you think about your audience? Or are you just kind of writing the way you write and making it fit into the publication? Oh well, I mean, you have to respect your audience. You're your editor has entrusted you with telling a story and they're counting on you to be able to give the, their readers what they need, they want. And so it'd be presumptuous of me to just write the way I want. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer, but I also am very respectful of 
my audience. And so, for example, uh, if I'm writing for Oregon Wine Press, well, that's trade and consumer. And so I have to think about what, you know, I have to put myself in my reader's shoes every time I write the story. And I also have to put myself in my editor's shoes every time I write the story. And the, so it's a little bit like acting. You're always, you know, there, it's a different role for every publication and you just have to adjust. And if you're a writer, that's what you do. It's, it's you know, using words to tell a story and uh, the story varies according to his reading. Talk about some of your some of your stories over the years that you're particularly proud of or particularly memorable experiences for you um, as you've kind of progressed through the end of your, your writing industry. Hmm. I think um, I really uh, enjoyed um, working, doing technical spotlights for Wine Business Monthly, um, Jim Gordon was my editor and uh, I liked using that analytical part of my brain um, and, and kind of being a geek in that respect. But then I liked being able to write for Oregon Wine Press for Hillary and um, being able to do things on the sparkling wine. Oregon, to, to me, Oregon sparkling wine is just, um, it's just magical. And so the stories that I've been able to write uh, on Oregon sparkling wine and also about Burgundians in Oregon and just that Oregon and Burgundy tie, those to me are very special. Um, any, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Oh, yeah, totally, absolutely. You you mentioned early on and, and a couple of times the, the kind of Burgundy Willamette Valley being the, the kind of the cornerstones for you. So mm -hmm. tell me about a little bit about what makes those so exciting for you and the, and the connections between the two and, and sort of compare and contrast writing about Burgundy with writing about the Willamette Valley. Well, I consider Burgundy the touchstone for wine, the wine world. It's the, it's the, it's, they have a, over a thousand years history of um, where they've codified a system and identified um, Klima and Ludi that uh, so there's a rigor to their system and there's an uh, analytical approach um, through systemic, you know, systematic research. Uh, and uh, yet every single expression varies according to the winemaker. And so there's a beauty, it's, it's beautiful because you have the, the thumbprint of the terroir but then you have the thumbprint of the winemaker. And so it's endlessly, an endless, endless variation on a theme. And uh, I just find that fascinating. Um, I have learned to taste wine uh, through Burgundy, I learned how to taste wine in a way that is different than how Americans approach it, I think. Um, for, for Burgundians, it's all about pleasure and how much pleasure does the wine bring you? And so the, they're, they're descriptors. If you, to me, French is the most perfect language for wine because the descriptors are just so 
they just they just fit the the wine so perfectly. Um, and then you get to Oregon, and to me, uh, Oregon is very similar to Burgundy in mindset because Burgundy, it, I think Oregon winemakers have a very Burgundian approach to how to winemaking or they wouldn't be where they are today in the world stage. Um, they're very nose to the grindstone, nose down, dirt under the fingernails, um, eyes on the prize. And the prize is doing the very best job you can do. There are no slackers in Oregon and there are no slackers in Burgundy. And if they are, they're not doing well, so. But I will say, you know, driving, every time I drive down um, on 99 into uh, the Willamette Valley, I just get a smile on my face because the same thing happens to me in Burgundy. My first experience with Burgundy, it wasn't about the wine. I didn't know anything about Grand Cru the first time I went there. It was about the energy, the feeling of the place, the sense that this was something historic, something special. And when you go to Oregon, there's an energy there that is undeniable. And it's very similar um, when you drive through it. So again, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm curious, your, if you remember your, your first impressions of the Oregon wine industry. Obviously, I know your first impression of Oregon Pinot Noir. You've talked right. about that. But tell me about, as you started to learn about the industry a bit more, what, what, what did you think about Oregon wine at, at the first? And, and what are some of the changes you've seen in the industry that are most noticeable and most impactful? Well, from the start, I had the impression that the Oregon wine industry was um, stood out for a couple of different reasons. And one of those reasons was the congeniality and the collaboration. I mean, it was just, these are people who, yes, they were competitors, for, but they were about making the best wine possible. And in doing that, making their region the, you know, world-class. And so that stood out for me right away. Um, you know, the pioneers, they like to call themselves hippies, but they weren't. They were mad scientists, you know, they were, and look at the second generation, look at their children. Those, you know, look at people like Jason Led and Mimi Castile, they went away, but they came back. Why? Because there's something about this place and about making wine here that is just, it's, uh, there's a siren call to it. <laughs> So uh, those are two things that really stand out for me. And um, also my experience with the uh, uh, Oregon Wine Board, um, for me, they, they're like the special forces of wine associations. <laughs> You know, like uh, they get in, they get out, they get it done and no questions. Uh, and it's just amazing. They're just, I mean, wildflowers, wildfires, they were on it completely. 
you name a catastrophe, they're on it and they're ahead of the curve and they've got, you know, data to help you get through it. They've got focus groups. I mean, it's just amazing. And the other thing that I will say about the Oregon wine industry that really stands out is the education. Between Linfield University, uh, Chemeketa, Oregon State, it's just amazing the collaboration between the wine industry and the, the wine programs and the education. And that I think is another key component that, that sets Oregon apart. Even goddess is Linfield University, which I appreciate. We're still all getting used to saying that. It's been a long time. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's only been a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have uh, favorite topics or places or people within Oregon to write about? Oh, God. Well, I already mentioned sparkling wine. I could write about Oregon sparkling wine all day long. All day long. It's amazing. It's, I mean, I know people are really into the Chardonnay, but I'm sorry, I just sparkling, or nobody has, any, I just, I dread the day when, when people realize just how good Oregon sparkling wine is, because that's when the prices are going to jack up and I'm just going to be, <laughs> it's going to be sad. But uh, anyway, yeah, there, it's amazing. Is there something specific about it that excites you so much about Oregon sparkling wine? What is it about it that's, that's so exciting for you? Well, I guess the best way to describe Oregon sparkling wine is it's kind of like um, the mullet. It's the Pinot Noir is what everybody presents to the world, but their bar, the sparkling wine is what the winemakers get to do for fun. So maybe you should cut that out. I'm not sure if that's a proper proper thing to include here in the in the uh, thing. But Oregon sparkling wine, it's the way it's, it allows Oregon sparkling wine, it allows Oregon winemakers to really just get creative. Um, if you look at the, at the labels on their sparkling wine on the packaging, it's fun. I mean, you just wanna buy the bottle just because of the label. Um, and they're doing so many different creative things, different um, aging methods, different grapes. Uh, everybody's challenging one another. Uh, it's, it's just really exciting. And I think too that this ties into um, another thing that I really uh, appreciate about Oregon is the diversity of the AVAs. Um, like, like Burgundy, um, different uh, areas have different tastes. And so a Chambon Moussigny is not going to taste the same as a Merceau. Well, an Aeola Amity Hill isn't going to taste the same as a Dundee. And it's, for me, it's really fun to be able to, to do a tasting and be able to taste the terroir from each of these regions and, and understand the differences. And, um, and then also, not just in the Willamette Valley, but the Columbia Gorge, that's a very, very exciting wine region, especially for sparkling. Uh, and then Southern Oregon is really coming into its own um, with other varietals beyond Pinot Noir. So um, I mean, it's got some of the most diverse soils in the country. So as the, as the region has grown, obviously Oregon wine has roughly quadrupled in size in the last 20 years or so. 
um, in terms of number of wineries and number of number of vineyards uh, acres. Uh, are there are there major changes, major shifts you've seen um, within the industry? Are there are there things that concern you uh, on the horizon, or or is Oregon wine? You, are you still do you feel Oregon wine's future is still pretty strong? Well, um, I know as a writer who and I you know, have talked to a lot of different producers. Oregon has uh, been encroached, so to speak, by a lot of big producers from other areas, predominantly California. And I think at the beginning, there was some concern that they were gonna be Californianized, I guess is the word. Um, and I think what's happened is, speaks to uh, the Oregon wine industry. What's happened is that these these California producers have come in and have adapted to the Oregon mindset. And uh, I think that, that that's a huge sign of respect for this uh, wine industry. What do you see for the future of Oregon as you, as you look ahead? What, what, what's coming on the horizon? Are there changes that you see or, or uh, are happy about, or like I guess they are concerned about in the future? I think that Oregon is going to continue to embrace diversity. Um, I think they've been early and they've been loud about it. And I think they're gonna continue that. And um, I think they're a leader in that area. Uh, so I, I expect to see that. Uh, I would imagine, you know, obviously there's gonna be more um, diverse uh, wine varietals that people are gonna experiment with. Uh, I think technical innovation is continuing. I mean, look at Staller, uh, the whole idea of, uh, using technical innovations to advance your winery. Um, I think Oregon is going to continue to be a leader in sustainability, uh, biodiversity, biodynamics, anything to do with global um, warming. And I also think that Oregon is continue to lead the way in um, that collaboration between research, you know, education, uh, research, and uh, the industry. Uh, and, uh, you know, as far as wildflowers, that, you know, that's a concern. Uh, but I think, like I said, they are on it. So we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Um, when you're writing about Oregon wine for uh, a non-Oregon audience, or what is the what is the perception? What are the perspectives of Oregon from outside of the state? What does the rest of the world, wine world, think about Oregon right now? And what are people outside of Oregon excited about that's going on here? Uh, well, I think that uh, people look at Oregon as uh, elite. What what I've already said, they're leaders in so many different areas. Um, obviously, they make world class Pinot Noir, but more and more people are learning that they make world class Chardonnay as well, and eventually sparkling wine. And but they also have um, these other exciting wine regions like the Umpqua Valley, like the Applegate Valley, um, 
like the Rogue River, uh, like Columbia Gorge, like the rocks, um, or Milton Free Water, I should say. Um, so uh, I think it's a, I think people look at Oregon and they see um, innovation. They, they see an exciting wine region where there's just so many different things to, to try. So outside of Oregon, you, you, we talked about Burgundy as, as well uh, a bit, but I'm curious, where else have you, other places that have, you've traveled and, and, and researched and written about that are exciting to you? Oh, wow. Um, obviously, uh, Northern Italy, for sure. Uh, Lake Garda region, Alto Adige, uh, the Veneto. Those regions are just amazing. Um, Those, and, and Southern France, oh my God. <laughs> I have, I don't think people understand just how amazing Southern France is as far as wine. So let's talk about uh, one of the reasons we're meeting via Zoom today. Obviously we're still dealing with COVID-19 and it's well into 2021 now and there's a light at the end of the tunnel but it's still a ways off. So I'm curious, for you, for you personally, talk about how COVID has changed your kind of work life and your writing life uh, and, and what you've sort of done to adapt during this time. Well, uh, the two most important ways it's changed my life obviously are, you know, that I can't travel anymore. Uh, and also uh, it changed the uh, advertising budget for a lot of the publications that I write for. And so um, either my fees dropped or they couldn't pay me. That's huge if you're a, a professional wine writer. Uh, so those were the two major impacts. And what have you done to adjust? How have you, how have you made it work for yourself the past year? Um, well, I just got into more content in SEO and uh, just do more Zoom, Zoom chats, Zoom virtual tastings, which I, 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 have, I value them. I've, I've found them to be incredibly valuable, so. And what about the, the wine world at large? What, what are the biggest changes you've seen or the impacts you've seen from COVID on the places you study and the places you write about? Well, uh, the way I look at COVID overall is the, it's kind of like a harvest. There are no bad harvests. There are only winemakers who rise to the occasion more adeptly than others. And so I think what COVID has taught the wine, uh, for me, COVID has made the wine industry a place where wine professionals have started to view each other as colleagues instead of competitors. There's much more collaboration. That is a silver lining that's come out of COVID for, that I've noticed. And I find it very encouraging. And also uh, it's, you know, I'm looking at Oregon, for example. Um, I'm, I'm just using Oregon as an example, but uh, through COVID, people collaborated, they came together, um, they learned how to be creative, they learned how to be flexible, um, they were tough, 
but they were unstoppable. And that I think is another lesson that's come out of COVID, how to be unstoppable. Are, are there some adaptations you've seen from wineries either in Oregon or, or elsewhere that you think will stick around as, as the world gets back toward normal? Are there things you've seen created or adapted that you think might become part of the per, sort of permanent wine culture? Oh yeah, I mean, look at Paul Maubray and Pix Wine and um, the people who are doing innovative technology. Um, the I don't wanna say the tasting room is dead, but I think people are starting to learn that community can be created uh, and culture, a culture can be created virtually if done mindfully. Absolutely. Um, so uh, as your career has progressed, I know you, you ha you've received some recognition for some of your work. I know you are a very recent uh, award winner for your wine photography. Uh, I'm curious, uh, tell me about some of the recognition you've received and, and how, what it means to you to have been recognized for your work in the wine industry. Well, Nobody wants to be that one hand clapping. <laughs> you know, when you get, I mean, it's nice to know that people appreciate your work. It's nice to know because a writer's life is very solitary. And especially in COVID, you, you're not out there. You're not meeting and greeting. I mean, you're doing things virtually, but um, it just makes you, it just makes you feel like what you're doing is valuable and valued. So on that note, uh, what's next for you? What do you have on the horizon? What are you kind of looking forward to? And, and what do you see for your future in the next, next say, five, 10 years? Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm looking forward to traveling again. <laughs> and uh, I would imagine um, I'd like to just do more, you know, more of the same. Just keep writing. I write, therefore I am. Are there topics you haven't explored yet that you're looking forward to or regions you haven't talked about yet that you're looking forward to? Are there absolutely. things you haven't explored? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, South America, Brazil has an amazing sparkling wine uh, community as does Argentina and Chile that I would love to explore. Uh, and then uh, the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, Tasmania has amazing sparkling wine as well. I've never been to New Zealand and I love New Zealand Pinot Noir. I would like to go there sometime. Um, so that whole Southern hemisphere just intrigues me. If you had, uh, if, if someone were to approach you and ask you for advice on getting into writing about wine or getting into the wine industry in some way, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Well, be prepared to have a savings uh, cushion because you're not going to make a lot of money at least especially at the beginning um, and you have to be able to want to do it for love and you have to be willing to um, want to learn and you have to be willing to want to ask questions and be curious and stay curious and and pick topics that you love Pretty solid life advice there for, for, for a number of different things. I like that. 
Um, okay, Angela, one, one more question for you here, and we'll get a little philosophical. And you, I think you started, you kind of started your interview with this answer. I'm curious to see if you have any more to say about it, but what, what to you is the role of wine in society? Uh, it is, as I said before, it is the red thread that connects civilization to our past, our present, and our future. I love, I love that answer. Uh, so that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything that I, I didn't ask that I should have anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, but I really do appreciate this, uh, this uh, oral history that, that Linfield University is doing. I think it's one of only two in the nation. I think California has one, um, but I, I just really appreciate the opportunity and I really appreciate what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. As, as you can imagine, as you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty wonderful industry to talk to people about and to learn about. So it's, it's exciting for us as well. And thank you so much for being a part of it. Thanks for sharing your story and your opinions. And you. hopefully someday I'll get to interview you. <laughs> absolutely, yes. Uh, and we still we have an open invitation to visit the archive. When, when travel is a thing again, we would love to host you here. So thank you, Rich. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. We'll go it's ahead and let cool. you off the hook. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.